children are, are dismissed for children's church. Um, the rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. I'm going to attempt to do this uh, all, all of John chapter 9 today. And the reason being is it is one unit, it is one story. And if I took it in parts, which I could do, I think that we would miss the overarching message of this. Um, fitting today that it is dark in here. Um, also, if you just uh, joined us, uh, welcome to church. Um, we're glad that you um, are here. It's not Sunday school. Um, we're, we are an hour later. So thank you for coming. So we're in John chapter 9. We're going to read the whole story. Now, I want you to set this as the context for this. Note that Jesus, um, at the Feast of Booze, there's two great um, things that happen in the Feast of Booze, and they both have to deal with water, and they have to deal with light. And so what we see is that in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, we see an example, an application of Jesus using water at the pool of Siloam. And then also we see that Jesus is the light of the world who actually brings um, sight to a blind man. So what we find, and I had one commentator or one pastor say this, that if we think of uh, chapter 7 and 8 as the lecture, chapter 9 is the lab. And I don't know if any of you were um, biology or chemistry majors or anything like that, but you know that the lab is much longer than the actual lectures. Um, So this is what we see today. So... Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Again, I will take this as a full unit. It is, um, it is a great story, a great story of faith. Now, remember, too, that Jesus, in verse 20, 58, um, he says something astounding to the Jews and the, and the leaders of the synagogue. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And now we get to the story. He goes out of the temple at the conclusion of the Feast of Booze, and here's what we see. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but, the work, but th- that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming, and when no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, 
How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so the key to this verse is found in verse 39 because we see what's happening is there's the juxtaposition between the Pharisees and the Jews and this blind man. And really, the key to this is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light that brings light to life. And we know that those men loved darkness. We actually read that in other places in John. And you know this, right? Like you know that light is a good thing especially today, right? I'm so glad that we decided to put windows in the sanctuary when we built it, right? Because if we were in a big black box right now, we would all be very, very dark and see where we were seeing. As a matter of fact, one of the things about the light is that certainly the light illuminates our path. The light allows us to see where we are going. And when you stumble in the darkness, you will fall. Um, In Virginia, we lived um, in this place called Windsor Castle. Uh, Windsor Castle looked like a regular house, but any house that was built of stone back in the, um, in the colonial days was mentioned to be a castle. And there was a, a large trail that would go around uh, our, our house and around this 200-acre park that we lived in. 
And there were times where I would wake up early enough where I wanted to go run, but it was still dark outside. And I remember um, get putting on uh, stuff to, to go uh, run, you know, and I would go run for a while. And Katie said, honey, it's dark outside. Are you really going to go run the trail in the dark? And I said, well, I know the trail pretty well. It'll be fine. You know, and the sun was going to come up eventually, right? So I remember going out in the trail, and there's a part where there are no trees, and I'm r- running the trail, and then I get to a part where there's trees, and it's up and down. And in the midst of the darkness and the trees, I remember hitting a root and then falling down. Now, um, I fell down. It was going uphill, whatever. Um, and so what do you do when you fall down as a grown man? You immediately get up and see if anybody else has seen you fall down, right? Like, you're not worried about if you're hurt. You just look around like, anybody see that? Okay, nobody saw it. Okay, now let me check and see if I'm actually okay, and let me begin running again. But I probably ran a little slower. My pace slowed down. And even when I got to certain places that I knew it was really, really twisty and turning uphill, I probably began to walk. And so I got home. I walk in the house, and I think I have, you know, probably, you know, a a bloody knee, you know, and Katie looks at me, and she goes, what happened? And I'm like, I mean, really, do you really need to ask what happened? I mean, it's pretty obvious that I was attacked and, and, you know, somebody mugged me, you know, but don't worry, those three guys, they got what was coming to them, you know? And I said, no, I fell down. I fell down in the midst of this. And she goes, well, that's because it was dark. And I'm like, yeah, I know it was dark, honey. You know, I know it was dark. That's why I fell down. You see, I needed the light in order to see where I was running. And really what Jesus is saying is you need the light of life in order to guide and illuminate your path so that you know where you're going. And what we find is that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, as we dig into this, here's what we find. First, is that the, 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 <laughs> the disciples ask just a horrible question. Apparently, they had been reading the, the grief book by Job's friends, you know, Bildad and Eliphaz, um, and they're reading this book, and they're saying, hey, there's a blind guy over there, and so let's ask Jesus a question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they actually have it in their mind that any physical um, deformity or physical malady that you had, it must have been a result of, of sin. And certainly, we would say that certainly sin in general, sin in general is what brings about disease. It brings about pain and suffering. But more specifically, they're saying that certainly what is happening is that this man's blindness must have been caused by his parents or his predecessor's previous life. Or maybe, um, did this man sin? Um, Again, look at what he says, what they say. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, if it was this man, how could he have actually sinned prior to his birth in order to be born blind? There's almost this weird sort of um, karmic or karma-like evaluation that they're putting on him, and, and they're just confused. And Jesus clarifies, and he says this. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, suffering, in the case of, um, in this particular case, we think about this, you know, this, this idea of suffering in the life of a believer, in the life of a person who's called to faith. Um, and we have to believe this. In the case of a Christian, an all-wise heavenly father is permitting, su- is permitting suffering in a carefully controlled situation in order that he might accomplish a desirable purpose. That's a hard thing for us. You see, um, Trials and suffering that God gives 
to a believer are meant to actually shape and form us and that God will actually use these trials and these sufferings to bring about his glory and his will. What's hard about that is that if you're in the midst of trial and suffering, if you're in the midst of pain right now, you go, Lord, I don't see how you're shaping me or working this out for my good and your glory. It's a hard thing. There's a um, story of a a man. um, He was depressed over the tragedies in his personal and professional life. He was a believer and he was wandering along the streets of a city and he passed by a construction site of a large church. And as he passed by, a workman was chipping on a stone cross and the man asked him what it was for. And the workman replied, you you see at the top of that spire over there, there's a space up there where this precious stone is going and I'm chiseling it down here so it will fit up there. This gave the Christian the answer that he was seeking. Walking back home, he lifted his heart to heaven and he said, I understand my trials now, Lord. You are shaping me down here so that I will fit in the place you have prepared for me up there. But the pain um, involved in the chipping and the cutting is difficult. But I want you to see this. Um, Jesus says, you know, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And now he's speaking specifically about this blindness. Uh, And again, in, in John chapter seven, he says, I am the light of the world. But having said these things, Now, I want you to get this picture for a second. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made a mud with his saliva. Now, John uses that to actually tell us something that's important for this story. Because the kneading, kneading, like kneading bread or kneading a mud pie, is actually forbidden by the Jews in their Sabbath. And this was the Sabbath, and we'll get to there in a little bit later. But at this point, this blind man has not said anything He was not the blind man on the road crying out to to Jesus, Lord Jesus, please correct my vision, but rather he was a beggar sitting on the side of the road, but he can hear. And what he hears is the disciple saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, it's just, there's no compassion here with regard to the disciples. It's very sad. And he still has not said anything yet. And so Jesus gets down and and he spits you know, he spits on the ground, and, and you know, if, if you're going to make a mud pie, you've got to have a lot of spit, too, right? Like, there's not, it's not like just, you know, just a little bit of spit. I mean, this is a lot of spit Jesus, you know, puts in a mud pie, and then he doesn't say anything to the man at this point, but he goes up and actually touches the blind man. Have you ever had somebody touch your head and you didn't know they were touching your head? Usually you pull away, Right? Jesus comes to the blind man and he begins to put mud mixed with his saliva over his eyes, right? This blind man is feeling all of this occur. This is the encounter with Jesus. Never sees Jesus, but look at the faith of this man. I want you to see this because when, after he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent, so he went and washed and came back seeing. You see, he had faith 
There's something about when you encounter Jesus that you actually do what Jesus says to do. But he never laid eyes on Jesus because he went away, he was blind. So he, he has this, mu- and, and think about this, like where he is sitting is not near the, the pool of Siloam. So he has, he's a blind guy wandering in the streets of Jerusalem with mud on his face, he, who again, is, he's, he's blind, he's a beggar, he's somewhat outcast in society, and so now he's wandering to the pool of Siloam, he gets to the pool of Siloam and he begins to wash his face. And in the midst of washing his face, his eyes begin to work. His eyes begin to work and he begins to see things that he has never seen. He doesn't know what a person, he doesn't know what color is. He has no idea what green or blue or red. He has no idea what those things are. And he begins to see and he is excited. Now, I want you to see this in this miracle. We should observe the almighty power that Christ holds in his hands. J.C. Ryle says this, we see him doing that which is itself impossible. Without medicines, he cures an incurable case. He actually gives eyesight to one who was born blind. Such a miracle as this is meant to teach an old truth, which we can never know too well. It shows us that Jesus, the Savior of sinners, has all power in heaven and earth. Such mighty works could never have been done by one that was merely man. In the cure of this blind man, we see nothing less than the finger of God. Such a miracle above all, is meant to make us hopeful about our own souls and the souls of others. Why should we despair of salvation while we have such a Savior? Where is the spiritual disease that he cannot take away? He can open the eyes of the most sinful and ignorant and make them see things that they never saw before. He can send light into the darkest heart and cause blindness and prejudice to pass away. Light has come into the world. But in John chapter 3, verse 19, as well as chapter 5, verse 40, the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. You see, a moment with Jesus changes this man's life forever. And Jesus is displaying his omnipotence. Jesus is displaying that he is God. And John is using this miracle, this fifth miracle, to describe that Jesus is the Savior. And if you will come to Jesus, he will give light to your eyes. He will illuminate your path. That which was darkness, those people living in darkness have seen a great light. But now we see this next section. Look at verse eight. Look at the neighbors. The neighbors can't see the light. The neighbors can't see it. You see, you have to have a personal encounter with Jesus in order to do it. A secondary encounter with Jesus is not gonna do it. You have to have a personal encounter with Jesus to actually believe. Notice what we see. The neighbors don't do it. They're like, "Uh, I don't even think this is the same guy. This can't be the same guy. He's got the same clothes and he, he sounds the same, but he can see. This can't be the same guy. So they said, you know, others said, and then they asked him, 
You know, how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go and wash. And I went and washed and received my sight. And then they they asked this question. I love this. So where is he? And he goes, come on, fellas. I was blind. I don't know which direction he went. Like, I couldn't see. I had mud on my eyes. It reminds me of a story, um, one of, the, one of the, the sweetest places and one of the most joyful places um, that I've ever encountered is a place called Camp Barnabas. And many of you know Camp Barnabas fairly well. And the year that I was uh, the youth pastor here many, many years ago, 20 years ago or so, um, we went to Camp Barnabas and, and I was in a cabin filled with um, kids who, who had you know, issues with, it was blind and deaf week. And that's what they had, blind and deaf week. And I was just, um, it was amazing to me to see how the kids talked about their, their illnesses. These were loved kids, and they had a great time. And um, I remember uh, one, one of the funny stories at Camp Barnabas for me was there was a, a little boy, and he had about 10% vision in one eye, and he's completely blind in the other eye. And he was kind of a trickster and kind of a prankster, and that's just who he was. And so this little boy, um, he, he went up behind uh, another little boy, and this other little boy was deaf. He had just enough vision to sort of make out that this little boy was there. And he went up behind him, and he grabbed him, and, and he scared him. And he said, um, and he came back running, and he came back, and he came up to us, and he said, he goes, man, did I ever scare Robbie? He goes, I got up behind Robbie, and I scared him. Now, isn't that, he says, now I know it's not hard to, to, to scare a deaf, to sneak up on a deaf kid. He said, but I really got him, Right? And he goes, you should have seen the look on his face. He said, now, I couldn't see the look on his face either, but I know I got him really good. (laughs) You know, essentially, the man born blind is saying this. He's like, look, there's no way in the world I know where Jesus is. All I know is the man called Jesus touched me, and he changed my life forever. So the Jews, I want you to see this. Um, The Jews, the Pharisees, they can't believe it. So in, in chapter 13, the Pharisees, the man, they brought the, to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, this is the self-righteous. This is the, the religious. This is the people who you know, are really, really going to come after you. Uh, um, there, there's a story. Uh, some of you have read the book the, or, or seen the movie uh, Jane Eyre. You know, and it begins, uh, the movie begins with a horse-drawn carriage pulling up to the drive of a small country estate. And a man emerges. He is tall, dark, with grotesque features, bushy black eyebrows, and a menacing scowl. Those familiar with the uh, iconography of the modern film already will have guessed that this man's occupation, anyone, this diabolical, must be a minister. I'm supposed to laugh at that, okay? All right. So as as the sinister man stands in the door, he is solemnly introduced as the Reverend Mr. Brocklehurst. The purpose of his visit is an inspection of the young Jane Eyre, who is a candidate for admissions to the school of which the reverend is headmaster. Jane is an orphan, and her aunt is hoping to pack her off to boarding school. Your name, little girl, little girl asked the reverend Brocklehurst. Jane Eyre, sir. Well, Jane Eyre, are you a good child? At this, Jane hesitates, and her aunt intervenes. Perhaps the less said on this subject, the better. Mr. Brocklehurst, With that, the minister calls for the orphan girl to stand before him. Do you know where the wicked go after death? He asked menacingly. They go to hell, Jane replies. And what is hell? Can you tell me that? And she says, it's a pit full of fire. And should you like to fall into that pit to be burning there forever? No, sir. And what must you do to avoid it, he asks. And here, Jane's catechism fails her. 
So she has to think a bit. Finally, she answers, I must keep in good health, sir, and not die. (laughs) You see, these people are self-righteous, the the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a self-righteous group that comes, and they say, you know, certainly Jesus is a sinner. He's actually healed on the Sabbath, and they don't understand that the Sabbath was actually made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They understand that works of necessity, works of healing are good things rather than things that should be abstained from. And they're trying to figure out who Jesus is, that he's undoing their traditions. So the Pharisees ask this man, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Again, that's why we we see that he was kneading the mud, like, like bread, and he put it on his eyes. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division. So they asked the blind man, who do you say he is? He opened your eyes. And this man says, he is a prophet. He is certainly a prophet in my life because he has revealed to me what I've never been able to see before. That's what prophets do. They reveal the will of God so that the people of God might know what God wants them to do. So the Pharisees, his neighbors don't think it's him. The Pharisees don't think it's him. So what do they do? They actually bring in the man's parents now, you would think that his man's, this man's parents were excited and overjoyed that their son, who was born blind, can now see. But you see, they're fearful of the Jews. And when they bring them in and say, is this your son? They go, yes, we know this is our son. Then how is it that he now sees? And they go, we do not know how he sees. He is of age, ask him. Because they're worried about being expelled from the synagogue. They're worried about being expelled from the temple because if you were a Jew living in Jerusalem at that time and and you were cast out of the synagogue, then you no longer could take care of yourself because the Jewish people would would buy their their goods from other Jewish people. And if you were a Jew who was cast out of the synagogue, essentially you were expelled from society and there was shame heaped upon you and you could no longer be a part of the community. And so they were fearful because these men had power and they had the power to take away community and and really the way that they could take care of themselves from these these parents. And so out of fear, they said, ask our son. So they bring the man back in, right? And I want you to see this. This is the first form of gaslighting I've ever seen. And gaslighting, if you don't know what gaslighting is, gaslighting is this term that's out there. And gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which the abuser attempts to sow self-doubt and confusion in their victim's mind. Typically, gaslighters are seeking to gain power and control over the other person by distorting reality and forcing them to question their own judgment and intuition. That's what's going on right here. We see this. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents. And so we go down, so verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he goes, I don't know about that. Whether he's a sinner, I'm not so sure. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? It, it must be that you, you could see a little bit and now you see something must have happened. But what he says is, do you also want to become his disciples? And then someone who actually has a growing faith is reviled. We see this um, 
is that they, they cannot deal with um, his faith. These verses show us that nothing convinces a man so thoroughly as his own senses and feelings. We read that the unbelieving Jews tried in vain to persuade the blind man whom Jesus healed that nothing had been done for him. They only got from him one plain answer. I now see. How the miracle had been worked, he did not pretend to explain. Whether the person who had healed him was a sinner, he did not profess to know. But that something had been done for him, he stoutly maintained. He was not to be reasoned out of his senses, whatever the Jews might think. There were two distinct facts of which he was conscious. I was blind, but now I see. We also see that in the midst of God's economy, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, when Paul says to the brothers, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So in the midst of this story, in John chapter 9, what Jesus is doing is he is taking the lowest of the low, a blind beggar, and he is elevating him to a place where he now declares he can see. And he's taking the highest of those who esteem themselves, you are the leaders of the day, the leaders of the synagogue, the Pharisees, and he's saying to them, you are blind and you are living in darkness and you love the darkness. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the world and he's turning it upside down. That's what he's doing throughout this passage. Now, one of the things I want you to see is that in the midst of this, we see that you know, the light is meant to get steadily brighter in a believer's life. I want, you, I want you to see this. Look at verse 11. Let's go back to verse 11. Notice what the man who was born blind, what does he say about Jesus? He just says, he's a man called Jesus. It's a man called Jesus, did this to my eyes, and now I see. But you see, the light begins to shine a little brighter, and he begins to understand a little deeper. And notice what he says in verse 17. When the Jews ask him, the Pharisees ask him, what do you say about him? He goes, he is a prophet. Not just a man, but a prophet. Now, look at verse 31. In verse 31, when they say, you know, when they say, who is this Jesus? He must be a sinner. In verse 31, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If the man were not from God, he could do nothing. Certainly he is saying not just a man, not just a prophet, but he is a godly person who is doing God's will in the world. Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35, because after they expel him, after they cast him out, essentially from expulsion from the temple and the synagogue, in verse 34, Jesus finds him, and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, um, he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And then he says, you have seen him, and this he who is speaking to you, and he says to him, Lord, I believe. I mean, that's, that's the point of this particular passage is that Jesus takes spiritual blindness and he allows us to see. 
He allows us to see our own sinfulness. He allows us to see our own need of a savior. And when you behold the face of Jesus, you know that you are free indeed, that you are loved and forgiven. That the beauty of this passage is you see a growing faith from a man called Jesus to a prophet, to a godly person who did God's will, to the son of man, to the Lord, to my Lord, to the Lord where I believe. I've seen him and I believe. You notice we don't know what the man's name is. His name is never given because it's emblematic and John uses that to say that we're all like this blind man. We're all like this blind man and we have a deep spiritual blindness and that all of us need the healing touch of Jesus in order that we will see and believe. And again, secondary encounters with, with, with Jesus, you know, just hearing about it. No, you need to encounter Jesus and he will change your life. Now, let me say this. Um, you know, washing in the pool of Siloam. Um, let, me, let me make an application point here because I think that we, in some sense, need to wash in the pool of Siloam again and again and again. Not because we're not saved the first time or justified, but I think that there are times, um, how many of you guys have ever had something in your eye and it caused you great irritation and pain? Anybody? Anybody ever gotten something in their eye and your eye just is crying over and over again, trying to get that irritant out? You know, I think sin is like that in the midst of our own life. You see, um, in Psalm 119, it says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And I think the dust certainly represents the world and it represents our own sinfulness. And I think in the midst of believers, when we see, sometimes our sight is obstructed because of what gets into our eye. I remember a story, um, one, of, one of our kids, I'm not gonna say which one, but is the youngest one. Um, he, um, he was probably four or five years old and we were at a prayer meeting um, because we're a godly family. Uh, and we were at a prayer meeting and it was outside, but it was really, really buggy, right? Like tons of bugs, mosquitoes everywhere in Virginia. And that's just kind of where it is. We, it's, it's a swampy area. Um, and so we were, he, he, we were putting bug spray on him, right? And he had the spray and we're like, hey, buddy, be careful. Don't spray that in your eye. And he goes, I'm not gonna spray this. Ow, ow, right in my eye. I mean, just right into his eye, right? And so the moment it sprayed into his eye, it began to burn and Katie grabbed him and where did she take him? She took him inside to the sink where she began to wash out the bug spray, right? Now, if I can say that that bug spray represented the sin of the world, what do we need? We need to go to the pool of Siloam over and over again to wash ourselves clean, to know that we are clean through the blood of Christ, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are okay. We need that. And I tell you what, when you get something in your eye and you start crying, you can't think about anything else. When your eyes hurt or have something very small in them, it is painful. Let me, let me give you a couple illustrations. Um, when you begin to think that you have no value due to your own sin, we will begin to show others how good we are and place ourselves on the hamster wheel of good works and what other people think of us. 
When that happens, we need to run to the pool of Siloam and wash. When we begin to think that we are useless, defective, and unwanted, which makes you yearn to make yourself valuable to other people, which leads to worshiping them or an idea that they value, we need to run to the pool of Siloam and we need to know that we are right before God because of Jesus. When we begin to think that we are helpless or incapable of anything worthwhile, and this leads us to trust in our competency and and, and prove ourselves to everyone who we are, constantly saying, look at me, look at what I've done, then as a believer, we need to run to the pool of Siloam and wash and know that you are washed and you are clean because of what Jesus has done for you. When you begin to think that your suffering is due to a careless, capricious God and that you are unloved by the Father, then we need to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And we need to know that what Jesus has done for us has reconciled us to the Father and that we are no longer under his wrath or judgment, but rather we are under the umbrella of his love and care and protection and that you have value in the eyes of your Father because of what Jesus has done for you. Many of us feel great value less. And yet God says, I love you and I care for you. Again, you're a son or daughter of the Most High King. You're not a child of wrath, but you're a child of God because of faith in Jesus. Now, the other thing that we see is that the light of Jesus brings warmth and comfort to the blind man. Notice that light oftentimes not just brings light, but often the sunlight actually brings warmth to us. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus, after he gets expelled from the synagogue in verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He comforts him. He shows himself to this man. J.C. Ryle again says this, we have here one among many beautiful illustrations of the mind of Christ. He sees all that his people go through for his sake and feels for all from the highest to the lowest. He keeps account of all their losses, crosses, and persecutions. He knows how to come to their hearts with consolation in their time of need and speak peace to them when all men seem to hate them. The time when men forsake us is often the very time when Christ draws near saying, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, when everybody, I mean, think about this. This beggar went through this euphoric experience of now being able to see. Now he's on trial with the Jews, trial with the Pharisees, and now he's been cast out and expelled. So he went from you know, zero to hero back to zero again, right? And in the midst of that, Jesus comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, yes, Lord, but who is he that I might believe? And he says, you whom you see with your eyes, I am him. And he says, Lord, I believe. You see, Jesus shows up 
and comforts with the warmth of the gospel when the whole world has turned cold against you. The other thing I want you to see in the midst of this particular passage is, and I'm getting close to the end, is I want you to go back and and see what we, um, when he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, I believe that there's also an application for us is that that once our eyes are opened, we are called to direct those living in darkness out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. You know, the the pool of Siloam, which means sent, there's no uh, mistaking, and John uses this with, with purpose here because he's saying that this man was sent to go wash And there's an aspect of this is that he also began to testify to the Jews and to the Pharisees. He is a man, Jesus. He is a prophet. He is uh, one who does God's will. And certainly he is the son of man, and I believe. There's a testimony. And the testimony of this man is not about what Jesus did, but rather it is who Jesus is. That's what we're called to do. We are called to take people into the light. One of the things, um, again, uh, living in, in, in Virginia, we would, um, Katie and I, we would oftentimes take our dog, um, Henry, and we would walk the um, trail at twilight. And in the midst of walking this trail at twilight, um, on one particular um, evening, as we were walking, it was getting very close to, to dark, but we saw our house. And as we're walking across a bridge, we came upon a woman who looked very lost. You know, she, she looked, I mean, she was obviously, she was older than Katie, so she must have been like, I don't know, like 32, 33. Um, and I'm just kidding. You know, my wife's not here. I can say all kinds of stuff today. Um, she's back in the back serving. Um, but this woman was probably in her, in her early um, 70s, and she was turned around, and she was getting ready to enter into the forest. And it was getting very dark. And although this forest trail was two miles, she would have been wandering around this forest trail without a light for some time. And so we had our dog. Uh, Katie and I were there. And I went up to this woman and I said, ma'am, do you know where you're going? And she goes, I don't. I'm trying to get my way back to um, Smithfield Station, which was a hotel across the bridge. But she was walking in the wrong direction. And she was walking in the wrong direction, in the dark, going into the woods, and she would have been lost for a long time. And so we we said, ma'am, we know where Smithfield Station is. Can we take you there? And she goes, oh, that would be wonderful. Would you please take me there? So we took her to the edge of a bridge, and we got halfway across the bridge, and on the other side was a parking lot, and on the other side of that parking lot was the light for Smithfield Station. And I said, ma'am, do you understand where you are now? And she goes, yes, I just need to head towards the light. And I go, absolutely. You know, that really is a picture of what we're called to do with those living in darkness. As we're supposed to direct them towards the light of Christ. And when they encounter Jesus, he will open their eyes so that they will understand their own sinfulness, but they will even more acutely understand their need for forgiveness and they will find it in Jesus. It's the beauty of the gospel. And in front of us today, we have this, um, this sign and seal of the covenant of grace. You see, when we, when we come to this table, you know, this bread represents his body broken for us. 
And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And this, this juice will always remain juice and this bread will always remain bread. But essentially, every time we come to this, essentially, we're coming to the pool of Siloam saying, I need Jesus. I need to feast upon Jesus. I need to believe and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I need to be reminded that I am saved and loved and forgiven because of all that Jesus has done for me. As we come, I want you to think about washing. What does it mean? Well, certainly, you know, we think about baptism as washing, but when we come to this on a regular basis, we're called to remember all that Christ has done for us. You see, Jesus died on the cross so that we don't have to. And when Jesus did all of his good works, all of his good works are credited or imputed to us. His righteousness is imputed to us so that when God the Father looks upon us as his children, he looks upon us as if we're Jesus. We're clothed with his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, there may be something in your eye today. (laughs) There may be something that is obstructing your view of Jesus. I pray that the the gospel would wash it away and that you would know to believe in Jesus alone. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that you've called us to this table, Father, because of your love. And Father, as we come, Father, I pray that we would know that we are children of God, saved not by our own works, but saved by your works. And Father, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you that your body was broken. Thank you that your blood was spilt for us. Father, help us. Help us to see and then help us to lead other blind people, spiritually blind, to the saving, forgiving light of Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.